When you think about processing tabular data in Python, what library comes to mind? Pandas, I'd guess. But there are other libraries out there, and Polars is one of the more exciting new ones. It's built in Rust, embraces parallelism, and can be 10 to 20 times faster than Pandas out of the box. We have Polars creator, Richie Vink, here to give us a look at this exciting new data frame library. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 402, recorded January 29th, 2023. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Mastodon, where I'm at mkennedy, and follow the podcast using at TalkPython, both on bostodon.org. Be careful with impersonating accounts on other instances. There are many. Keep up with the show and listen to over seven years of past episodes at talkpython.fm. We've started streaming most of our episodes live on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel over at talkpython.fm slash YouTube to get notified about upcoming shows and be part of that episode. This episode is brought to you by TyPy. TyPy is here to take on the challenge of rapidly transforming a bare algorithm in Python into a full-fledged decision support system for end users. Check them out at talkpython.fm slash TyPy, T-A-I-P-Y. And it's also brought to you by User Interviews. Earn extra income for sharing your software developer opinion Head over to talkpython.fm slash user interviews to participate today. Hey, Richie. Welcome to Talk Python to Me. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. I feel like maybe I should rename my podcast Talk Rust to Me or something. I don't know. Rust is taking over yeah, <laughs> as, yeah. as the low-level part of, of how do we make Python go fast? There's some kind of synergy with Rust. What's going on there? Yeah, there is. I'd say Python always already was low-level languages that succeeded that made Python a success. I mean, like NumPy, Pandas, everything that was reasonable fast was so because of C mm-hmm. or Cyton, which is also C. But Rust, different from C, Rust has made low-level programming a lot more fun to use and a lot more safe. And especially if you regard multi-threaded programming, parallel programming, concurrent programming, it is a lot easier in Rust. It opens a lot of possibilities. Yeah, my understanding, I've only given a cursory look to to Rust, just sort of scan some examples. And we're going to see some examples of code in a little bit, actually, related to pullers. But it's kind of a low-level language. It's not as simple as Python. No, it's... You know, um, maybe a, a JavaScript, but it is it is easier than C, C++, not just in the syntax, but, you know, it has... It does better memory tracking for you and, and the concurrency especially, right? Yeah, well, so Rust has got a... brings a whole new thing to the table, which is called ownership and a borrow checker. And Rust is really strict. There are things in Rust you cannot do in C or C++ because at a time there can only be one owner of a piece of memory and other people can. You can lend out this piece of memory to other users, but mm-hmm. then they cannot mutate. So there can be only one owner which is able to mutate something. And this restriction makes Rust a really hard language to learn. But once you once it's clicked, once you went over that, that steep learning curve, it becomes a lot easier because it doesn't allow you things that you could do in C and C++, but those things were also things you shouldn't do in C and C++ because they probably led to sec faults and to memory issues. And this borrow checker also makes writing concurrent programming safe. You can have many threads reading a variable all they want. They can read concurrently. It's it's when you have right. writers and readers that, that this whole 
thread safety, critical section, take your locks or the locks re-enter and all of that really difficult stuff comes in. And so, yes, yeah, indeed. It, it sounds like an important key to make. Yeah, and Ross and the same board checker also um, knows when memory has to be freed and not, but it doesn't have to, unlike in Go or Java where you have a garbage collector, it doesn't have to do garbage collection and it doesn't have to do reference counting like Python does. It does so by just statically. So at compile time, it knows when something is out of scope and not used anymore. And this is real power. I guess the takeaway for listeners who are wondering, you know, why is Rust seemingly taking over so much of the job that C and variations of C, right? Like you said, Cython have traditionally played in Python. It's easier to write modern, faster, safer code. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it's more um, fun too, right? Yeah, definitely. And it's a, it's a language which has got its tools, right? So it's got a package manager, which is really great to use. It's got a real crates.io, which is similar to, to, to the PyPy index. Feels like a modern language yeah. builds low level, more low level code. You can also write high level stuff like uh, REST APIs, which is, I must say, also for high level stuff, I like to write it in Rust because mm-hmm. of the safety guarantees and also the correctness guarantees. If, I, if my program compiles in Rust, I'm much more certain it is correct than when I write my Python program, which is dynamic and the types can, are not enforced. So it's always a bit praying on that side. Yeah. Python is great to use, but it's harder to write correct code in Python. Yeah, and you can optionally write very loose code, or you could opt into things like type hints and even MyPy, yeah. and then you get closer to the static languages, right? Are you a fan of uh, on typing? Definitely, but because they're optional, they are as strong as the weakest link. So one library which you use, if it doesn't do this type correct or doesn't do it, it yeah, it breaks. It's, it's it's quite brittle because it's optional. We, I hope we get something that really enforces it and really can check it. I don't know if it's possible because of the dynamic nature of Python. Python can do so many things just dynamically yeah. and statically. We just cannot know probably. I don't know how far how far it can go. But I, yeah, in Polaris as well, we use MyPy type hints, uh, which prevent us from having a lot of bugs and also make the IDE experience much nicer. Yeah, typings are great. They really yeah. help you also think about your library. I think you really see a shift in modern Python and, and Python 10 years ago, where it was more dynamic and dynam- the dynamic, dynam- how you call it? The dynamic yeah, yeah. of Python were more seen as a strength than currently, I, I believe. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I feel like when Typens first came out, you know, this was, yes, wow, at this point, kind of early Python 3, <laughs> but it didn't feel like it at yeah. the time, you know, it, Python 3 had been out for quite a while. When type hints were introduced, I feel like that was Python 3.4, but anyway, that was put it maybe six years into the life cycle of Python 3, but still, I feel like a lot of people were suspicious of that at the moment. Yeah. You know, they're like, oh, what is this weird thing? We're not really sure we want to put these types into our Python. And now a lot less, there's a lot less of those reactions. Yeah, I, I see. Yeah, yeah. I see Python having two, probably more, but I often see Python as the really fun, nice to use. Duct tape language where I can, in my, for instance, in Jupyter Notebook, I can just hack away and try interactively what happens. And for, for such code, typings don't matter. But once I write more of a library or a product or a tool, then typings are really great. I believe they came about that Dropbox really needed them. They had a huge Python code base and had really trouble maintaining it without typings. But I'm not really sure. Yeah, and I heard some guy who has something to do with Python used to work there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gato yeah. used to work there, at the, I think even at that time. 
All right, so a bit of a diversion from uh, how I, I often start the show. So let's just circle back real quick and get your story. How did you get into programming and Python and, and Rust as well, I suppose? I got into programming. I just wanted to learn programming. A friend of mine who did who programmed a lot of PHP said, learn Python, you like that more. <laughs> Gave me uh, an interactive website where I could do, do some, some puzzles, and I really got hooked to it. I, uh, it was a fun summer, and uh, yeah. I was programming a lot. I started automating. I, uh, my job was a civil engineer at the moment, and I started. There was a lot of mundane tasks which were repetitive, and I just found ways to automate my job. And eventually, I was doing that for a year or three, four, and then I got into data science and I switched jobs. Uh, became a data scientist and later a data engineer. Yeah, so that was Python mostly. I've always been looking for more languages. Been playing with Haskell, been playing with Go, been playing with JavaScript. Oh, JavaScript I did quite well. So playing with Scala. And then I found Rust and Rust really, really made me happy. Like you learn a lot about how computers work. And yeah. So I had a new renaissance of the first experience with Python another summer with Rust and been doing a lot of toy projects like write, writing an uh, interpreter, I don't know, a lot of projects and Polis became one of those hobby projects just to use Rust more. Now it's, uh, it's got quite the following and, and we're going to definitely dive into that, but well, let me pull it up. Oh, it says right there, 13,000 GitHub stars. That's a, that's a good number of <laughs> yeah. people using that project. Yeah, yeah. crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. It's... Um, on GitHub Stars, it's the fastest growing data tool, I believe. Wow, <laughs> incredible. Yeah. It, um, you must be really proud of that. Yeah, yeah. If you would have told me this two years ago, I wouldn't have believed it. But those, it happens slow enough so you can get accustomed to that. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, kind of like being a parent. The yeah. challenges of the yeah. kids are are small. They they're they're intense, but they're only a few things they need when they're small, and you grow you kind of grow with it. Yeah. So a couple of thoughts. One, you had the inverse style of, of learning to program that I think a lot of computer science people do, and certainly that I did. It could also just be that I learned it a long time ago. But when I learned programming, it was, I'm going to learn C and C++, and then then you're kind of allowed to learn the easier languages, You but you will learn your pointers. You'll have your void star star, and you're going to like it. You're going to yeah. understand what a pointer to a pointer means, and we're going to get, I mean, you know, you start inside and you of, of the most complex closest to the machine you work your way out you kind of took this opposite like let me learn python where it's much more high level it's much you know if you choose to be you often stay very much more away from the hardware and the ideas of memories yeah. and threads and all that and then you went to rust so was it kind of an intense experience where you're like oh my gosh <laughs> this is intense or had you studied enough languages by then to become comfortable well yeah yeah no so the Going from high level to low level, I think it makes natural sense if you learn mm -hmm. it yourself. There's no professor telling me <laughs> you learn your pointers. Yeah. So I think this also helped a lot because at that point you're really accustomed to programming, to algorithms. To, yeah. So you can, I believe you should learn one thing, one new thing at a time, and then you can really own that knowledge later on. But yeah. Rust, I wouldn't say you should you learn Rust as a first language. It would be really terrible because you need uh, that would be terrible. But other languages also don't help you much because the, the borrow checker is, is quite unique. It doesn't let you do things you can do in other languages. So what you what you learn there, the, the languages that allow you to do that, they just hurt you because <laughs> you were... They, they encourage the wrong behavior, right? Well, yeah. So nine out, of, nine out of 10 times, it turns out by the compiler not letting you do that one thing, 
that one thing you wanted was probably really bad to begin with. It led to really, so in Rust, your code is always a lot flatter. It's always really clear who owns the memory, how deep your nesting is. It's always one D deep, or most of the times it's, it's, it's not that complicated. You, you make things really flat and really easy, easy to reason about. And in the beginning of a project, it seems, okay, a bit over-constraining. But when, I mean, software will become complex and complicated, and then you're happy that the compiler nudged you in this. Yeah, absolutely. In this direction. It seems like a better way, honestly. You know, you get a sense of programming in a, a, a more simple language that doesn't ask so many low-level concepts of you. And then you're ready. You, you can add on these new ones. Uh, so I, I feel like a lot of how we teach programming, how people learn programming is a little bit backwards, to be honest. Yeah. Anyway, enough on that. Uh, so you were a civil engineer for a while, and then you became a data scientist, and now you've created this library. Still working as a data scientist now? No, no. I got sponsored two years ago for two days a week. And yeah, just uh, use that time to develop Polar. And currently, I stopped all my day jobs and uh, going full-time on Polars. I'm trying to live from sponsorships, which is not really working. It's not enough at this time. But I hope to start a foundation and get some uh, proper sponsors in. Yeah, um, that'd be great. It's, yeah, it's I mean, that, that's awesome. Uh, it's still awesome that you're able to, to do that, even if you know you still needed to grow a little bit. Yeah. yeah, We'll have you on a podcast and let other people know out there who, who maybe are using your library. Maybe they yeah. can you know, put a little sponsorship in GitHub sponsors. I feel like GitHub sponsors really made it a lot easier for people yeah. to to support. Because there used to be like PayPal donate buttons and other other things like that. And one, those are not really recurring. And two, you've got to go find some place and put your credit card. You, many of us already have a credit card registered at GitHub. It's just a matter of checking a box and monthly it'll just go. You know, it's kind of like the app store versus buying independent apps. It just Cuts down yeah. a lot of the friction. I feel like it's been really positive, mostly for open source. Yeah, I think it's sponsors. good, good to, um, as a way to say thank you. It, um, it isn't enough to pay the bills. I think for most developers it isn't, but um, I hope we get there. I think mm -hmm. companies uh, who use it should give a bit more a bit more back. I mean, they have a lot of money. I agree. It's really, really ridiculous that there are banks and VC-funded companies and things like that that have not necessarily in terms of the VC ones, but definitely in terms of financial and other large companies that make billions and billions of dollars in profit on top of open source technology. Yeah. And many of them don't give anything back, which is, it's not criminal because the licenses allow it, but it's it certainly borders on immoral to say, yeah, yeah. all this money and not at all support the people yeah. who are really building the foundations that we build upon. Most of my sponsors are developers. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. We'll, let's hope it changes. I don't know. Yeah, well, I'll continue to beat that drum. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by TyPy. TyPy is the next generation open source Python application builder. With TyPy, you can turn data and AI algorithms into full web apps in no time. Here's how it works. You start with a bare algorithm written in Python. You then use TyPy's innovative tool set that enables Python developers to build interactive end-user applications quickly. There's a visual designer to develop highly interactive GUIs ready for production, and for inbound data streams, you can program against the TyPy core layer as well. TyPy core provides intelligent pipeline management, data caching, and scenario and cycle management facilities. That's it. You'll have transformed a bare algorithm into a full-fledged decision support system for end-users. 
TyPy is pure Python and open source, and you install it with a simple pip install TyPy. For large organizations that need fine-grained control and authorization around their data, there is a paid TyPy Enterprise Edition, but the TyPy core and GUI described above is completely free to use. Learn more and get started by visiting talkpython.fm slash TyPy, that's T-A-I-P-Y. The link's in your show notes. Thank you to TyPy for sponsoring the show. Let's talk about your project. So polars and the RS is for rust, I imagine at the end. Yeah. But tell us about the name polars, like polar bear, but polars. Yeah. So I started writing a data frame library and initially it was only for, for rust. It was my idea until <laughs> you get. Until you saw all the people doing data science in Python. You're like, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. what can I do for these people, right? Yeah, yeah. And I wanted to give a wink to the Pandas project. But I wanted a beer that was better, faster, I don't know, stronger. So <laughs> luckily, a Panda beer is, isn't the most frightful beer. So uh, I, I had a few to, choo to choose. But the Grizzly, yeah, the Polar has the RS. So that's a lucky coincidence. Yeah. So Yeah. So the subtitle here is Lightning Fast Data Frame Library for Rust and Python. And you have two APIs that people can use. We'll get to dive into those. Yeah. Because we've written in, in Rust, it's a complete data from library in Rust, and you can expose that to many frontends. So currently it is already a frontend in Rust, Python, Node.js, R is coming up, and normal JavaScript is coming up, and Ruby, there is also a Polar in Ruby. So, uh, oh, interesting. Yeah. So for the JavaScript one, are you going to use WebAssembly? Yeah. Right, which is pretty straightforward because Rust comes from Mozilla. WebAssembly, I believe, also originated, they kind of originated as a sim uh, somewhat tied together yeah, story. Yeah, so Rust C++ C can compile to WebAssembly. It's not really straightforward because the WebAssembly virtual machine isn't like your normal OS, so there are a lot of things harder, but we're, we are working on the challenges. There. Okay, well, that's pretty interesting. But for now, you got Python and you've got Rust, and that's great. Let's, I think a lot of people listening, myself included, when I started looking into this, immediately go to, it's like pandas but Rust, you know? It's, it's like pandas, but instead of C at the bottom, it's it's Rust at the bottom. And that's somewhat true, but mostly not true. So let's start with you telling us, you know, how is this like pandas and how is it different from pandas? Yeah, so it's not like pandas. I think it's different on two ways. So we have the API and we have the implementation. And which one should I start with? Bottom up? That's, I think, bottom yeah, which, up. Yeah, bottom up, sure, yeah. all right. So, that was my critique from Pandas, and that they didn't start bottom-up. They took whatever was there already, which were good for that, that purpose. And Pandas built on, on NumPy. And NumPy is a great library, it's, but it's built for numerical processing and not for relational processing. Relational data is completely different. You have string data, you have message data, and this data is currently just put as Python object in those NumPy arrays. And if you know anything about about memory, then in this array, you have a pointer with where each Python object is somewhere else. So if you traverse this memory, every pointer you hit, you must look it up somewhere else. That memory is not in cache, so you have a cache miss, which is a 200x slowdown per element you traverse. Yeah. So for people listening, what you're saying, the 200x slowdown is the L1, L2, L3 caches, which all have different speeds and stuff, but the, the caches that are near the CPU versus main memory it's like two to 400 times slower, yeah, not yeah. aging off a disk or something. It's, it's really different, right? It's really yeah, a big deal. It's a big deal. It's terribly yeah. slow. It also, Python has a gill. It also blocks multi-threading. 
if you want to read the string, you cannot do this hmm. from, from different threads. If you want to modify the string, there's only one thread that can access Python Git. So they also didn't you didn't take into account anything from databases. So databases are basing from the 1950s. There's been a lot of research in databases in how we do things fast, write a query, and then optimize this query because the user that uses your your library is not the expert. It doesn't write optimized query. No, but we have a lot of information so we can optimize this query and execute this in the most in a very efficient way. Well, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, and Pandas just mm-hmm. executes it and gives you what you ask. And what you ask is probably not the best. Yeah, that's interesting because as programmers, as when I have my Python hat on, I want my code to run exactly as I wrote it. I don't want it to get clever and change it. I, you know, if I said do a loop, do a loop. If I, if I said put it in a dictionary, put it in a dictionary. But when I write a database query, be that against Postgres with relational or MongoDB, there's a query planner. And the query planner looks at all the different steps. Should we do the filter first? Can we use an index? Can we use a compo? Uh, which index should we choose? All of those things, right? And so what you tell it and what happens, you don't tell it how to do right. finding the data of the database. You just give it, here's kind of the expressions that I right. need, the, 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 the predicates that I need you to work with. And then you figure it out. You're smart. You're the database. Right. So one of the differences I got from reading what, what you've got here so far is it looks like, I don't know if it goes as far as this database stuff that we're talking about, but it, there's a way for it to build up the code it's supposed to run. And it can decide things like, you know, these two things could go in parallel or things along those lines, right? Yeah, yeah. well, it is actually very similar. It is a factorized query engine. And you can. the only thing that doesn't make us a database is that we don't have any, we don't bother with um, with file structures and with right like the persistence and transactions and all. Yeah, that. so we have different type, kinds of databases. You have OLAP and o, and uh, OTP transactional modeling, which works often on one. So if you do a, a REST API query and you modify one user ID, then you're transactional. And if you do OLAP, that's more analytical. And then you do large aggregations of large whole tables, and then you need to process all the data. And those different database designs lead to different. Uh, query optimizers and Polis is focused on OLA. But yeah, we, so as you described, you've got two ways of programming things. One is uh, procedural, which Python mostly is. So you tell exactly if you want to get a cup of coffee, how many steps it should take forward, then rotate 90 degrees, take three steps, then rotate 90 degrees. You can put write down the whole algorithm, how to get a coffee, or you could just say, get me a coffee and then, uh, I'd like some sugar and then let the, let the algorithm, let the query engine decide how to best get it. Right. And that's more declarative. You describe the end result. And as it turns out, this is also very readable because you declare what you want and the intent is readable in the in the query. And if you're doing more procedural programming, you describe what you're doing and the intent often needs to come from comments. Like, what are we trying to do with, when we follow this out? Right, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, that's why, yeah, sorry. And that's why the, so the first thing is we write from, we write a database engine, a query engine from scratch, and really think about multiprocessing, about cache caches, about also out of core, we can process data that doesn't fit into memory. So we really built this from scratch with all those things in mind. And then in at first, we wanted to expose the Pandas API, and then we noticed how bad it was for writing fast data. The Pandas API just isn't really good for this declarative analyzing of what the user wants to do. So we just cut it off and 
took the freedom to design an API that made most sense to run. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that you had started trying to be closer to Pandas than you ended up. Yeah. Well, it was very short-lived, I must say, because it, <laughs> it was painful. Yeah, and that's not necessarily saying Pandas are bad, I don't think. It's approaching the problem differently, and it has different goals, right? Yeah. So yeah, maybe we could look at an example of some of the code that we're talking about. I guess also one of the other differences there is much of this has to do with what you would call, I guess you refer to them as lazy APIs or streaming APIs, kind of like a generator. Mm, yeah. So if you think uh, about about a join, for instance, in Pandas, if you would write a join and then take only do and only want the first 100 rows of that result, then it would first do the join, and then that might produce 1 million or 10 million rows. And then you take only 100 of them, and then you have materialized a million, but you take only a fraction of that. And by having that lazy, you can you can optimize for the whole query at, at a time and just see how oh, we do this join, but we only need 100 rows. So that's how we materialize 100 rows. So it gets you more right. realistic approach. That's really cool. I didn't realize it had so many similarities to databases, but yeah, it makes a lot of sense. All right, let's look at maybe a super simple example you've got on polar.rs. What country is RS? I always love how different countries that, that often have nothing to do with domain names get grabbed because they have a cool ending like Libya that was .ly for a while. You know, it still is, but like it was used frequently like bit.ly and stuff. And do you know what RS is? I believe it's uh, Serbia. Serbia, okay. Cool. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, very cool. All right, so polar.rs, like pola.rs. Over here, you've got on the homepage here, the landing page, and then through the documentation as well, you've got a lot of places where you like, show me the Rust API or show me the Python API. People can come and check out the Rust code. It's, it's a little bit longer because it's, you know, that kind of language, but it's not terribly more complex. But maybe talk us through this little example here on the homepage in Python, just to give people a sense of what the API looks like. Yeah, so we start with a scanned CSV, which is a lazy read, which is, so a read CSV does what you do, and then it reads the CSV and you get the data frame. In a scanned CSV, we start a, a computation graph. We call this a lazy frame. A lazy frame is actually just, it, it holds, it remembers the steps of the operations you want to do. Then it sends it to Polar, but it looks at this, this very plan and it will optimize it and will, will think of how to execute it. And we have different engines. So you can have an engine that's more specialized for data that doesn't fit into memory, an engine that's more specialized for data that does fit into memory. So we start with a scan, and then we do a dot filter, and we want to use verbs. Verbs, that's the declarative part. In Pandas, we often do indexes for a, yeah. and those indexes are ambiguous in my opinion, because you can you can pass in a NumPy array with Booleans, but you can also pass in a NumPy array with integers. So you can do slicing. You, you can also pass in a NumPy a list of strings, and then you do column selection. So it has three, three functions. One thing that I find really interesting about Pandas is it's so incredible, and people who are very good with Pandas, they can just make it fly. They can make it really write expressions that are, are super powerful, but it's not obvious that you should have been able to do that before you see it, you know, there's a lot of not quite magic, but stuff that that doesn't seem to, to come really straight out of the API directly. You know, you pass in like some sort of um, like a Boolean expression that involves a, a, a vector and some other test into the brackets. Like, wait, how, how did I know I could do that? Whereas this, your API is a lot more of a fluent API where you say, you know, PD, you'd say, 
PL, PL.scan, csv.filter.groupby.aggregate.collect, and it kind of just flows together. Does that mean that the editors and IDEs can be more helpful suggesting what happens at each step? Yes, we are really strict on type. So we also only return a single type from a, from a method. And we only, mm-hmm. a dot filter just expects a Boolean expression that produces a Boolean, not an integer, not a string. So we want our methods to, from reading our code, you should be able to understand what should go in there. That's really important to me. It should be unambiguous. It should be consistent. And you your knowledge of the API should expand to different parts of the API. And that's where, right. we, I think we're going to talk about this later, but that's where expressions really come in. Power. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by User Interviews. As a developer, how often do you find yourself talking back to products and services that you use? Sometimes it may be frustration over how it's working poorly, and if they just did such and such, it would work better, and it's easy to do. Other times, it might be delight. Wow, they auto-filled that section for me. How did they even do that? Wonderful. Thanks. While this verbalization might be great to get the thoughts out of your head, did you know that you can earn money for your feedback on real products? User Interviews connects researchers with professionals that want to participate in research studies. There is a high demand for developers to share their opinions on products being created for developers. Aside from the extra cash, you'll talk to people building products in your space. You will not only learn about new tools being created, but you'll also shape the future of the products that we all use. It's completely free to sign up, and you can apply to your first study in under five minutes. The average study pays over $60. However, many studies specifically interested in developers pay several hundreds of dollars for a one-on-one interview. Are you ready to earn extra income from sharing your expert opinion? Head over to talkpython.fm slash user interviews to participate today. The link is in your podcast player show notes. Thank you to user interviews for supporting the show. I just derailed you a little bit here as you were describing this. So you start out with scanning a CSV, which is sort of creating and kicking off a, a data frame equivalent here. A lazy frame. And then you, a lazy frame, okay. And then you say a dot filter and you give it an expression like this column is greater than five, right. right? Or some expression that we would understand in Python. And that's the filter statement, right? Yeah, and then we follow it a group by argument and then an aggregation where we say, okay, take all columns and sum them. And this again is an expression. And these are really easy expressions. And then we take this lazy frame and we materialize it into a data frame by calling collect on it. And collect means, okay, all those steps you recorded, now you can do your magic, query optimizer, get all the stuff. And what this will do here, it will recognize that, okay, we, we, we've taken the iris.csv, which got different columns. And now in this case, it won't. So if we would, would have finished with a select, where we only select a few columns, it would have recognized, oh, we don't need all those columns in the, in the CSV file. We only take the ones we need. What it will do, it will push the filter, the predicate, down to the scan. So during the reading of the CSV, we will take this predicate we say, okay, where the sample length is larger than five, the rows that don't match this predicate will not be materialized. So if you have a really large CSV file, this will really, let's say you have a CSV file with of tens of gigabytes, but your, your predicate only selects 5% of that, then you only materialize 5% of the, the 10 gigabytes. Yeah, so 500 megs instead of 10 gigabytes or something like that, or 200, 200 megs, whatever it is, uh, quite a bit less. That's really interesting. And this is all part of, 
the benefits of what we were talking about with the lazy lazy frames, lazy APIs, and and building up all of the steps before you say go. Because in Pandas, you would say read CSV. So, okay, it's going to read the CSV. Now what? Yes. <laughs> right? And then you apply your filter if that's the order you want to do it in. And then you group and then and so on and so on, right? right. It's interesting in that it does allow more database-like behavior behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. In the end, in my opinion, the data frame is, should be seen as a table in a, in a database. It's, it's the, the final view of the computation. So, like you could see it as a materialized view. It's, it's, we have some data on this and we want to get it into another table, which we would feed into our machine learning models or, or whatever. And we do a lot of operations on them before we get there. So I wouldn't see a data frame as a, as a data. Not, it's not only a data structure. It's not only a, a list or a dictionary. There are lots of steps before we get into those tables we eventually need. Right. So here's an interesting challenge. There's a lot of visualization libraries. There are a lot of other data science libraries that know and expect pandas data frames. So like, okay, what you do is you send me the pandas data frame yeah. here, or we're going to patch pandas so that if you call this function on the data frame, it's going to do this thing. And they may say, Richie, fantastic job you've done here in Polars, but my stuff is already all built around pandas. So I'm not going to use this, right? But it's worth pointing out there's some cool pandas integration, right? Yeah, yeah. So this, uh, so Polars doesn't want to do plotting. I don't think it should be in a data frame library. <laughs> Maybe another, another library can do it on top of Polars if they feel like it. It shouldn't be in Polars, in my opinion. But often when you do plotting, you're plotting, the number of rows will not be billions. I mean, there's no plotting engine that can deal with that. So you will be reducing your, your big data set to something small. And then you can send it to the plug. Yeah, there, there's hardly a, a monitor that has enough pixels to right. show you that in here, right. right? So, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. we can call two pandas, and then we transform our Polar's yeah. data frame to pandas, and then you can integrate with scikit-learn. With and we often find that progressively rewriting some pandas code into Polar's already is cheaper than keeping it in pandas. If you do a, if you go from pandas to Polar's, do a join in Polar's, and then back to pandas, we probably made up for those double copies. Pandas does a lot of internal copies. If you do a reset index, it copies all data. If you do, there are a lot of internal copies in Pandas which are implicit. So I wouldn't worry about an explicit copy in the end of your ETL to go to plotting when the data is already stored. Right, right. So let's look at the benchmarks because it, it sounds like to a large degree, even if you do have to do this conversion in the end, many times it still might even be quicker. So you've got some benchmarks over here and you compared... I'm going to need some good vision for this one. You compared Polars, Pandas, Dask, and then two things which are too small for me to read. Tell us what you compared. Modin and Vax. Modin and Vax, okay. And for people listening, you go out here and look at these benchmarks. They're linked right off the, the homepage. There's like a little tiny purple thing and a whole bunch of really tall bar graphs at the rest. Yeah. And the little tiny thing that you can kind of miss if you don't look carefully, that's the time it takes for polars and then all the others are up there in like 60 seconds 100 seconds and then polars is like quarter of a second so you know it's it's easy to miss it in the graph but the the quick takeaway here i think is there's some fast stuff yeah yeah we're often orders of magnitudes faster than pandas so it's not uncommon to hear it's 10 to 20x times faster especially if you do write proper pandas and proper polars it's probably 20x if, uh, if we deal with io as well 
So what we see here are the TPCH benchmarks. And TPCH is a database query benchmark standard, which this is used by every query engine to show how fast it is. And those are really hard questions that really, really flex the muscles of a query engine. So you have joins on several tables, different group buys, different nested group buys, et cetera. And yeah, yeah, I really tried to make those other tools fast here. But so in-memory, Dask and Modin, no, it was really hard to make stuff faster than Pandas, except for Pandas, no, on, on, some, on a few occasions. But once we include IO, all those tools first needed to go via Pandas. And it, yeah, what this sort of shows is that we have Pandas, which is a single threaded Data frame, en data frame engine, and then we have tools that parallelize pandas. And it's not always, they don't, just parallelizing pandas doesn't make it faster. So if we have a, a filter or a element-wise multiplication, parallelization is easy. You just split it up in chunks and do your parallelization. And then those tools, right, tools right. win. You got 10 cores, you can start yeah. 10 threads, and they can take one-tenth of the data and start to up answer yes or no for the filter yes. question, for example. A lot right? of people don't yeah, realize yeah. that a lot of data frame operations are not embarrassingly parallel. A group by is definitely not embarrassingly parallel. A filter, or sorry, a join needs a shuffle. It doesn't, it's not embarrassingly parallel. And that's why you see those tools being slower than pandas because they, they're string data and they then you have a problem because, or we need to do multiprocessing and we need to send those Python objects to to, to another project and we copy data, which is slow, or we need to do multi-threading and we're bound by the gill and we're single-threaded. And then there's the expensive shuffle. Yeah. I think there's some interesting parallels for Dask and Polars. On these benchmarks, at least, you're showing much better than uh, performance than Dask. I've had Matthew Rockland on a couple times to talk about Dask and some of the work they're doing there, Coiled, and it's, it's very cool. And one of the things that I think Dask is interesting for is allowing you to scale your code out to multi-cores on your machine or to even distributed grid computing or process data that doesn't fit in memory and they can behind the scenes juggle all that for yeah. you. I feel like Polar's kind of has a different way, but attempts to solve some of those problems as well. Yeah, the Polar has full control over it, over everything. So it's built from the ground up and it controls the IO, it controls their own memory, it controls which thread gets which data. And in DOS, it goes through, it takes this, this other tool and then parallelizes that. But it, it is limited by what this other tool also is limited by. But I think, so on a single machine, it has those challenges. I think Dask distributed doesn't have these challenges. And it, I think for distributed, it, it can work really well. Yeah, the interesting part with Dask, I think, is that it's, it's kind of like Pandas, but, but it scales in all these interesting ways across cores. Uh, bigger memory, but also across yeah. machines, and then you know, cross cores, cross machines, like all, all that. Yeah, stuff. and that's. I feel like Dask is a little bit maybe is trying to solve like a little bit bigger computer yeah. problem. Like, how can we use a cluster of computers to to answer these questions? Their documentation also I says it that themselves. They say that they're probably not faster than pandas on a single machine. So they're more for the for the large big data. Yeah, but Polos wants to be and a lot faster on a single machine, but also wants to be able to do out-of-core processing on the same machine. So if you, we don't support all queries yet, but we want to, we already do basic joins, group by sorts, predicates, uh, element-wise operations, and then we can process, uh, I process 500 gigabytes on my uh, on my laptop. That's pretty good. Your laptop probably doesn't have 500 No, 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 it's 16 gigs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. It's probably actually a value to 
as you develop this product to not have too massive of a computer to work on. If you had a, a $5,000 workstation, <laughs> you know, you would, might be a little out of touch with many people using your code. And, yeah. And so well, on. though, I think there, I think partners like scaling on a single machine makes sense for different reasons as well. I think um, a lot of people talk about distributed, but if you think about the complexity of distributed, you need to send data, shuffle data over the network to other machines. So there are a lot of people using Polars in our Discord who, who have one terabyte of RAM and say it's cheaper and a lot faster than Spark because they can, one, Polars is faster on a single machine, and one, two, wow. they have a, a beefy machine with like 120 cores and they don't have to go over the network to, to parallelize. And yeah, so I think times are changing. I think also scaling out data on a single machine is getting more and more. It is. One of the areas in which it's interesting is GPUs. Do you have any integration with no. GPUs or any of those sorts no. of things? Not suggesting that it necessarily is even a good idea. I'm just wondering if it does. No, I get this question, but I'm not really convinced I can get the memory I can get the data fast enough into the memory. Like we want to process gigabytes of data. And the challenge already on the CPU is is getting the data from cache from memory fast enough on a CPU this I don't know. I, I don't know. Yeah. So maybe we could talk really quickly about platforms that it runs on. You know, I just, this is the very first show that I'm doing on my M2 Pro right. processor, which is fun. I've literally been using it for like an hour and a half, so I don't really have much to say, but it looks neat. Anyway, you know, that's very different than an Intel machine, which is different than a Raspberry Pi, which is different than, you know, some version of Linux running yeah. on ARM or, or on AMD. So where, where do these... What's the, the reach? Well, we support it. it. We support it. We don't. So Polaris also has a lot of like SIMD optimizations. SIMD stands for single instruction data, where, for instance, if you do a floating point operation, instead of doing it a single floating point at a time, you can fill in those vector lanes into your CPU, which can fit eight floating points and in a single operation can, can compute eight at a time. And then you have eight times the parallelism on a single core. Those instructions are only activated for Intel. So we don't have these instructions activated for uh, ARM, but we do compile to ARM. How it performs? I think it performs fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But so if uh, the standard machines, right? Mac OS, Windows, yeah. Linux, or we're all yeah. good to go. Yeah. And it ships as a wheel. So you don't have to have any, you don't have to have Rusty no, no, no. or anything like ships that hanging around. Yeah. I, okay. We also have Conda, yeah. but the Conda is always a bit lagging behind. So I'd advise to install from PIP because we can we control this deployment. Yeah, exactly. You push it out to, to yeah. IPI and <laughs> that's what PIP sees and it's yeah. going to go, right? Pretty much instantly. I guess it's worth pointing out while we're sitting here is, um, not that thing I highlighted this, you do have a whole section in your user guide, the Polar's book called Coming from Pandas that actually talks about the differences, not just how do I do this versus, you know, this operation in Pandas versus Polar's, but it also talks about some of the philosophy, like this lazy, concepts that we've spoken about and a query optimization. I feel like we covered it pretty well. Yeah. Unless there's maybe some other stuff that you want to throw in here really quick. But I mostly just want to throw this out as a resource because I know many people are coming from pandas and they may be interested in this. And this is probably a good place to start. I'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah, I think the most controversial one is that we don't have the multi index. You don't have anything other than zero base, zero one, two, three. You know, where is it in the array type of Yeah. Well we can we will support data structures that make lookups faster, like index in a database sense. But 
it will not involve the it will not change the semantics of the query. That's an important thing for me. Okay. Yeah. So I encourage people who are mostly pandas people to come down here and you know look through this. It's it's pretty straightforward. Another thing that I think is interesting and worth talking about maybe is we could touch a little bit on some of the how can I and <laughs> your user guide. You've got how can I work with I/O? How can I work with time series? How can I work with multi-processing and so on? What do you think is good to highlight out yeah, of here? Well, the user guide is a bit outdated, so it's, I think it's a year old. So the, for instance, I/O is changing. Polars is writes its, has its own I/O readers. So we we've written our own CSV reader, JSON reader, Parquet, IPC, Arrow, and that's all in our control. But for Interaction with databases is often a bit more complicated. Deal with different drivers, different ways. And currently we do this with Connector X, uh, which is really great and allows us to read from a lot of different databases, but it doesn't allow us to write from databases yet. And this is happening, this is luckily changing. I want to explain a bit why. So Polaris builds upon the arrow memory specification. And the arrow memory specification is sort of the standard of how memory or data how memory for columnar data should look into, how columnar data should be for, should be represented in memory. And this is becoming a new standard. Mm -hmm. And Spark is using it, Dremel, Pandas itself. Um, for instance, if you read a parquet in Pandas, it reads in, first into error memory and then copies that into Pandas memory. So the error memory specification is becoming a standard. And this is a way to, to share data to processes, to other also to other libraries within the process without copying data. Uh, we can just swap our pointers if we know that we both support Arrow. Oh, how so Arrow defines basically a in memory, it yes. looks like this. And if you both agree on that, we can just swap our pointers. And, and right, because a, a .NET object, a C++ object, and a Python object, those don't look like anything no. similar to any of them, right, in, in memory. And, you know, so... So this is from the Apache Arrow yeah. project, yeah? And this is really, really used a lot by a lot of different tools already. And currently there is coming the ADBC, which is the Apache Arrow database connector, which will solve all those problems because then we can write, read and write from a lot of databases in Arrow, and then it will be really fast and really easy for us to do. So luckily, we, so we that's one of those foundations of, of Polars I'm really happy about because Supporting Arrow and using Arrow memory gives us a lot of interaction, interrupt with other libraries. Yeah, that's interesting. When you think of Pandas, you know, it's kind of built on top of NumPy as its core foundation, and it can exchange NumPy arrays with other things yeah. that do that. So, Arrow, so Apache Arrow is kind of kind of your your base. Yeah, well, there, it's right? kind of full circle because Apache Arrow is started by Wes McKinney. Wes McKinney being known as the <laughs> yeah. The creator of Pandas, and um, when he got out of Pandas, he thought, okay, the memory representation of NumPy is just not, we should not use it. And then he was inspired to build Apache Arrow, which learned from Pandas, and yeah. So that's how you learn about these projects, right? This is how you, you realize, oh, we, we had put this thing in place, maybe it would work better, right? You, you work on a project yeah. for five years, and you're like, if I got a chance to start over, but yeah. it's too late now, but every now and then, you do actually get uh, a chance to start yeah, over. Yeah. Interesting. I didn't realize that Wes was uh, involved with both. I mean, I knew from Pandas, but I didn't realize he's... Yeah, he's the um, CTO of Fultron, which... Uh, no, he started Apache Arrow. And that's... Uh, mm -hmm. Apache Arrow is sort of super big, like used everywhere, but 
sort of middleware. Like it's end users are developers and not end, yeah. end users are developers who build tools and not right. developers who use libraries. That's something like that. Right. You might not even know that you're using it. You just use, right. I just use pullers. And oh, it, by the way, it happens to internally be better because of this. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Okay, let's see. We've got a little bit of time left to talk about it. So, for example, this some of these, how can I? Let, let me just touch on a couple that are nice here. So you talked about Connector X, you talked about the database, but it's like three lines of code to define a connection string, define a SQL query, and then just you can just say pl.readSQL. Yeah. And there you go. You you call it data frame, or what, what do you call the thing you get back here? So reading is always a data frame. Okay. Scanning will be a place. Got it. Okay. Is there a... A scan SQL as well? No, this might happen in the future. The challenge is, are we going to push back our optimizations? So you write a Apollo's query, and then we must translate that into SQL, into the SQL we send to the database. But that needs to be consistent yeah. over different databases. And that's a whole other rabbit hole we <laughs> might get into. I'm not sure. it's really, Because you can already do many of these operations in the SQL query that you're sending over, right? You have sort of two layers yes. of query engines and optimizers and query plans. And it's not like you can't add on additional oh. filters, joins, sorts, yeah. and so on before it ever gets. Well, it would be terrible if someone writes select star from table and then writes the filters in polars. And then the database has sent all those data over <laughs> the network. So yeah, ideally, we'd be able to to push those predicates down into the SQL. Yeah, but you know somebody's going to do it because they're more comfortable writing Polar API in Python than they are writing yeah. T-SQL. Yeah, you will not, yeah. <laughs> if it's possible, someone will write it. It's not optimal. <laughs> That's right. That is right. Let's see what else can you do here. So you can, we've already talked about the CSV files, and this is the part of that I was talking about where you've got the, the, the toggle to see the Rust code and the Python code. So I think people might appreciate that. Parquet files. So Parquet files is a more efficient format. Maybe talk about using Parquet files versus CSV and why yeah. you might want to get rid of your CSV and like store these intermediate yeah. files and then load them. So this is a really yeah. fast CSV reader. Uh, I really did my best on that one. But if you can use Parquet or, or Arrow IPC because your data is typed, there's no ambigu ambiguity on, upon reading. We know which type it is. Right, because CSV files, even though it might be representing a date, it's yes. still a string. And we need to parse and, it. And a a lot of yeah, it's, it's slow to parse it. Yeah, There's exactly. also, we can just, so it okay, interacts really nicely with query optimization. So we can select just a single column from the file without touching any of the other columns. We can read statistics. And so a parquet file can write statistics, which knows okay, this page has got this maximum value, this minimum value. And if you have written a Polar query, which says also only give me the result where the value is larger than this. And we see that the, that, that the statistics say it cannot be in this file. We can just skip the whole column. We don't have to read. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Wow, okay. So there are a lot of um, optimizations, which so the best work mm -hmm. is work you don't have to do and okay allows. Exactly. Or, or you've done it when you created the file and you never do it again or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got a, a read parquet, a scan parquet. I, I suppose that's the data frame versus lazy frame. And then you also have the ability to write them. That's pretty interesting. JSON, multiple files. Yeah. Yeah. There's just a whole bunch of how do I, or how can I rather, a bunch, bunch of neat things. What else would you like to highlight I think here in the next The most important thing minutes? 
I want to touch on is the expression API. So that's a bit, if you go a bit higher. So if you scroll up, Polaris uh, expression. They got their own see, chapter. One of the goals of the Polaris API is to keep the API service small, but give you a lot of things you can do. And that's where the Polaris expressions come in. So Polaris expressions are expressions of fact of what you want to do, which are run and parallelized on a query engine. And, and you can combine them indefinitely. So an expression takes a series and produces a series. And because the input is the same as the output, you can combine them. And as you can see, we can do pretty complicated stuff. And you can keep chaining them. And this is the same like um, how I'd, I'd like to see it. For instance, the Python vocabulary is quite small. So we have a while, we have a loop, we have a variable assignment. But if you, I think it fits into maybe two, two pieces of paper. But with this, you can write any program you want with the combination of all those, all those, yeah, this vocabulary. Yeah. And that's what we want to do with the Polix expressions as well. So we, you've got a lot of small building blocks which can be combined into. Yeah. So somebody could say, I want to select a column back, but then I don't want the actual values. I want the unique ones, uh, a uniqueness. So if there's duplicate, remove those, and then you can do a dot account. Then you can add an alias, which gives it a new, which basically defines the yeah. column name. Yeah, you could read it as a... Well, it's not names, you it's You could read it as one. an as. So take column names as unique names to in SQL. But as is a keyword in Python, so yeah. I'm not allowed to use that. Right. <laughs> it means something else, yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's interesting. Pretty. Okay. Yeah, so people, they use these expressions to do lots of transformations and yeah. filterings and, and things like that. That's yeah, so these expressions powerful. can be used in a select on different places, but the knowledge of expressions extrapolates to different locations. So you can do it in a in a select statement, and then you select column net, you select this expression, and you get a result. But you can also do this in a group by aggregation, and then the same logic applies. It runs on the same engine, yeah. and we make sure everything is consistent. And this is really powerful because because it's so expressive, people don't have to use custom apply with a Lambda. Because when you use a Lambda, it's a black box to us. It will be slow because it's Python and we don't know what, ha what happens. So a Lambda is, it will be slow. It will kill parallelization because it kills. But yeah, a Lambda is three times bad for us. Right. It gets in the way of a lot of your optimizations and a lot of your, yeah. your speed ups and there. That's why we want to make this expression API very complete so you. You don't need them as much. Yeah, so people are wanting to get this, get seriously into this. They should check out chapter three yeah. expressions, yeah. right? And just go through there. It's probably, especially, you know, sort of browse through the Python examples that they can see where, go back and see what they need to learn more about. But it's a very interesting API. The speed is very compelling. I think, yeah. I think it's a cool project. And like I said, how many people we got here? 13,000 people using it already. So that's a, that's a pretty yeah. big community. Yeah. So if you're interested in the project, we have a Discord where where you can chat with us and ask questions and see how you can best uh, do things. It's pretty active there. Cool. The Discord's linked right off yeah. the homepage, so that's awesome. People can find it there. Contributions. People want to make contributions. Yeah, I'm sure you're willing to accept PRs and other feedback. Before you put in a really large PR, please first open an issue with a with an uh, <laughs> with a to start the discussion this is uh, this contribution is welcome and we also have uh, a few getting started good for new contributors okay yes yeah, so you've you've tagged or, or labeled some of the issues as look here if you want to get yeah. get into uh, this yeah i must say I, I think we're an interesting project to to contribute to because we're you can it's not 
not everything is set in stone. So there are still uh, places where you can play and not sure. Uh, there, there's still interesting work to be done. It's not completely 100% polished and, and finalized. Yeah, yeah, on the periphery. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very cool. Let's wrap it up with a comment from the audience here. Ajit says, excellent content, guys. This certainly helps me kickstart my journey from pandas to polars. Awesome. Awesome. Glad, glad to help. I'm sure it will help many people do that. So, Richie, let's close it out with you know, final call action. People are interested in this project. They want to start playing and learning polars. Maybe try it out on some of their code that is pandas at the moment. What do they do? I'd recommend, if you have a new project, just start in polars. And, um, because... You can also rewrite some pandas, but the most fun experience will just start a new project in Polars, and um, because then you can really enjoy what Polars offers. Learn the expression API, learn how you use it declaratively, and um, yeah, will be uh, then it will be most fun. Absolutely, sounds great. And like we did point out, it has the to and from pandas data frames, so you yeah. can work on a section of your code and yeah. still have it consistent, right? With with other parts that yeah. have to be pandas. You can progressively uh, awesome. uh, rewrite some performance-heavy parts. Or uh, I also think Supporters so is really strict on the on the schema, on the types. It's also, if you write any ETL, you will be really happy to do that in Polars because you can check the schema of a lazy frame before executing it. Then you know the B types before running the query. And if the data comes in and it doesn't obliged to this schema, you can fail fast and instead of having strange outputs. Oh, that's interesting because you definitely don't want zero when you expected something else because it could yeah. parse or other yeah. weird, yeah. Thing, whatever, right? Yeah. So this was my, um, so missing data in Polar doesn't change the schema. So Polar is really, the schema is defined by the operations in the data and not by the values in the data. So you can statically check your data. Excellent. All right. Well, congratulations on a cool project. I'm glad we got to share it yeah, with everybody. Thanks, thanks for coming on the show. Bye. You bet. Bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Thank you to our sponsors. Be sure to check out what they're offering. It really helps support the show. TypeI is here to take on the challenge of rapidly transforming a bare algorithm in Python into a full-fledged decision support system for end users. Get started with TypeI Core and GUI for free at talkpython.fm slash T-A-I-P-Y. Earn extra income from sharing your software development opinion at user interviews. Head over to talkpython.fm slash user interviews to participate today. Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TalkPython. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm slash YouTube. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code. Thank you.